This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The reality of the decision by School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto that campuses will remain closed for the remainder of the academic year is just settling in. HPR's Ashley Mizuo joins us this morning with a story about how progress with online learning has been a mixed bag from pre-K to high school. Well, as we know now, there's going to be no formal graduation ceremony, and pretty much third quarter grades are the last, like, letter grades that are going in for um, pretty much everyone. For each individual level of schooling, so preschool, elementary, and high school, they're all kind of dealing with their own issues, but the overall sentiment is that they're under no um, illusion that distance learning is going to be able to provide the same level of education that they were getting before they went to distance learning. So I spoke with Stephen Barnett the National Institute of Early Education Research, and he was telling me that there's a very big difference between, that's for preschools, and he said that there's a very big difference between teaching children how to learn versus building off of that learning foundation, and that is going to take a lot of time from parents keep children engaged in the distance learning, and he understands that that's probably not going to be possible for all parents or caregivers for these children. They're pretty much concerned on the preschool realm of how much preschool students are losing when they're missing out on these social interactions with other kids and then teachers, and they just said pretty much kindergartens next year are just going to have to be prepared for far less prepared students than they usually are receiving. And then there's even a big difference between elementary schools and high schools. I was speaking with Kanye Elementary School principal, Derek Minakami, and he says that for the students that they're, they've been unable to reach, he's actually going and making house calls himself, obviously keeping his distance, um, but he'll like go physically to the students' homes to try to make sure that they're okay. One of the main concerns for the older elementary school students um, is that the ones that aren't really participating in the distance learning, they're concerned that older siblings are kind of being left to supervise and take care of the younger ones and then in turn losing out on that distance education that they could be getting because they're becoming more like a caretaking kind of body in the home while the parents are working during the day or just dealing with everyday problems. Not everybody has computers, right? At Carnegie L, out of the 617 students, they've handed out 60 computers and then 100 physical packets. So at the public schools here, they're doing a mixed approach of both online learning and physical like worksheet packets and sometimes they're mixing them others are relying on the physical packets for those who don't have the resources like internet or the computer issue or maybe the family only has one computer and like a bunch of kids and parents are all trying to use this one computer, so that's been a little bit difficult as well. In the high schools, they're mostly concerned about mental health and how students are able to cope. They're not able to do in-person counseling, so that's a little bit difficult. And for a lot of students, they're missing a lot of milestones, like prom, graduation. You know, this time is when they're you're supposed to be spending time with their friends and kind of moving into that transition out of high school. And it's been a little bit more difficult for high schools to get in touch with older students because they're older and they have a little bit more autonomy than you see in like elementary school students and certainly in preschool students. Anything else you're hearing from teachers or principals? Right. The general advice has been this can be a good time for teachers to have shorter one-on-one or small group time with students that they wouldn't normally get in the normal classroom when they're trying to deal with, you know, however many students they need to and physically. They can be kind of breaking them into smaller groups or doing one-on-one sessions, and that's been good for the students who are more at risk who are maybe already were behind before COVID-19 and are now at risk of falling even farther behind. But the main advice for parents that all the experts have told me is to like keep your kids on some kind of schedule and find some kind of normalcy, but don't be too worried about missing specific assignments because they understand that, you know, everyone is coping with this outbreak in different ways and they're having a lot of hardships on families and teachers and principals completely understand that. And then if you're a teacher or principal listening, I would love to hear from you as well. Very interested in how you've had to adjust and what you're seeing with your students. Then there's also summer school, right? Right. And they're, they're looking at that to be an online thing as well. Okay. Um, All right. Well, we'll just have to see how it goes. It changes from day to day, but thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Ashley Mizuo to get a snapshot of what's happening with distance learning in our public schools. And it's now time to take a look at what's happening around the world. The U.S. says it's not cutting spending to fight COVID-19. And U.K. Prime Minister makes his uh, first public address since recovering from the coronavirus. Uh, You'll want to hear what Boris Johnson compares the virus to. Here's the BBC with the latest headlines. 
This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 27th of April. I'm Nick Miles. The US denies that it's reducing spending on global healthcare. France registers a record monthly rise in the number of people seeking unemployment benefits. And hairdressers go back to work in Switzerland. The US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has insisted the US is not reducing its spending on global healthcare, even though it's stopped funding the World Health Organization. Mr Pompeo told the BBC... He was confident the US would increase its aid. Here's Andrew Harding. America's top diplomat said no other country ever had or ever would do more to fight for global health. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the US was committed to spending over $170 million in Africa alone to help contain the coronavirus. He bristled at my suggestion that America's image abroad had been damaged by President Trump's recent comments about treating the virus with detergent and that African governments were now looking to China, the World Health Organization and even Cuba for support. Latest figures from France show that the number of people without jobs has surged as a result of the pandemic, dealing a heavy blow to President Macron's economic strategy. Almost a quarter of a million people registered as jobless last month when strict lockdown measures were introduced. Hugh Schofield reports from Paris. These figures make grim reading for President Macron, who before the epidemic was able to boast real progress in bringing down France's chronically high unemployment rate. In March, as the lockdown kicked in, an extra 246,000 people were registered as jobless. The government says the steep rise is caused not so much by companies laying people off as by the fact that people who would normally be moving on into work are not being taken on anymore. In other words, employment is frozen. U.S. oil prices plunged in early trading by more than 27% as a massive drop in demand due to the coronavirus pandemic. West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark, tumbled to less than $12.5 a barrel. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in his first address since recovering from the coronavirus, has said he won't throw away the progress made so far by easing the lockdown restrictions too soon. He said the tide was beginning to turn. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. This is the moment when we can press home our advantage. It is also the moment of maximum risk. The world's biggest trial of drugs to beat COVID-19 patients has been running in the UK for the past six weeks. Peter Horby is Professor of Emerging Infectious Diseases at Oxford University and explains how it's been going. Potentially combination therapies, different antivirals, plus an anti-inflammatory style drug in those that are, that are getting that inflammatory status. That's probably the recipe that will most likely have a good effect. And we only started on the 19th of March we're testing five drugs at the moment, so it's really five trials in one. And at the peak, we were recruiting you know, 400 patients a day. The quicker we get patients in, the quicker we'll get an answer. So we really want as many patients as possible being offered the chance to be in the trial. Russia has overtaken China in the number of coronavirus cases it's recorded. A daily rise of nearly 6,200 took the total above 87,000. China, where the pandemic started, has acknowledged around 3,000 fewer cases than Russia. Hairdressers in Switzerland, along with florists and garden centres, are the businesses being allowed to open today as part of the easing of restrictions there. The ban on groups of five remains, as does the instruction to work from home wherever possible. Poss is an Australian-born hairdresser who opened the doors of his shop today in Zurich. The social distancing with the hairdressing, of course, it just can't happen. We're using disposable gowns. We're disinfecting the chair after each client. I'm wearing a face mask. The client's wearing a face mask. I'm not offering tea, coffee, Prosecco, beer. It's a rather sterile experience. And in the Russian Republic of Chechnya, the leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, has rejected calls to reopen hairdressers. He said that those missing barbers should shave off all their hair. A free digital children's book explaining the disease has now been translated into 45 languages for use around the world. Coronavirus, a book for children, is illustrated by the Gruffalo artist Axel Scheffler. I don't feel I'm very good at drawing real people in the real world, but I'm not a nurse or a doctor or anything, so as an illustrator this is something I could do and I feel proud that I've done it and that it had this response. The book has already been downloaded a million times. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
today's Backyard Quiz, we look at former pop singer and current educator Glenn Medeiros. Born and raised on Kauai, he won a local radio station contest at age 16 with his cover of George Benson's Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You. His version took off and became an international sensation. Over the next 10 years, he recorded and released a string of hits, including the French and English duet, Friend, You Give Me a Reason with Elsa and All I'm Missing Is You with Ray Parker Jr. His singing career saw him release 11 albums, including a Christmas album. Although uh, his breakout hit topped the charts internationally, it never reached number one on the Billboard charts. But he did have one song reach the top, which Glenn Medeiros recording hit number one on the Billboard charts. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Nothing's gonna change my love for you. You wanna know my Support for the conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live discussion of the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, 8 p.m. this Thursday, pbshawaii.org. What, you can't read that? Have you ever been looking at your computer or your phone and realized that you just can't see like you used to? What are the signs of vision problems? And could it actually be something more serious than just the eyes? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an ophthalmologist about how to identify common eye problems and how urgent it is to be treated. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. As Hawaii schools close, the teaching and the learning continued virtually. That includes Mid-Pacific Institute. The private school in Manoa has been using a deeper learning approach, which is more student-centered and project-based. To teach this method, the school started the Kupuho Academy, which trains not just Mid-Pacific teachers, but all teachers. With in-person workshops out of the question due to social distancing rules, uh, Kupuho is offering professional development courses online. Mark Hines is the Academy's director. He spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai and discussed deeper learning and virtual learning. When we talk about deeper learning, this is a term that's become a lot better understood in our community, but the concepts of it have been around since the early 1900s with John Dewey. And that idea is that in order to students really understand deep, meaningful academic content, that we want them to do things where they grapple with ideas, where they use them to think critically about what they mean. Um, they use that information to solve complex problems. They um, have an implied need to communicate to each other, to experts, to a larger community, what they're learning and doing, um, that they have to do this collaboratively, that these things require a collective effort to understand, build, and then address the problem. It, it also has some of the same things that we hear a lot in the news now about kids knowing how to learn, about this idea of academic resilience, about the mindset of um, that I can learn to address problems and that I can become self-directed and learn those things on my own. So those aren't relatively new ideas, but the umbrella that things like project-based learning, place-based learning, inquiry learning, those all have an agreed-upon set of behaviors and outcomes that you can see when students and teachers are in the midst of doing that work. The question about pedagogy is, all of us that went through schools 20 or 30 years ago probably had a similar experience where the teacher's role was to give us information and our goal was to memorize it and then to give it back. And so the pedagogy is the how. It's how teachers design the opportunity for kids to address content or to understand information. When we talk about deeper learning pedagogies, we talk about ones in which the teacher does much more of upfront planning to set the context so that the learners do most of the heavy lifting. They do the thinking, the talking, the designing, the evidence creation. Um, you don't just take a test for short-term memory, but you actually have to apply information. And so 
the ways that teachers need to adjust their thinking about what it means to do instruction in a class, how they help students come to understand the information that's important in their discipline, and the ways that they collect evidence from those students are the things that our deeper learning work that we do help teachers figure out how to make that more effective and to understand better how to collect that data that they need. Now, with distance learning and virtual learning, how does this style, how does this uh, apply to folks uh, learning online, and how is it different than uh, traditional learning? You know, it's really an interesting moment because in the last 20 years, there's been a tremendous amount of research that's been done from the early days of virtual learning when the Internet first made it possible. I mean, distance learning has been happening for 100 years through correspondence courses and just being able to get a book and read it. But the idea of having a mediated, meaning that I'm not just taking something off the shelf and reading it, but there's an expert or a guide or a facilitator alongside me to help me ask questions, to help shape my learning pathway, that's a much more, um, in the last 20 years of research, And the early attempts at doing distance learning were just a teacher delivering content, you know, sort of turning traditional classroom teaching into online learning. And that had really poor outcomes. And so there's been a lot of uh, work done, including at the University of Hawaii, where I've done my um, advanced graduate work, that we've looked at the ways by which designing powerful virtual learning experiences can be as effective or even more effective in times for learners because it gives them time, it gives them um, a lot more opportunity to differentiate the kinds of media and resources that they can attach to. It allows them to reach out to a wider variety of a network and to talk more frequently with their peers and with other experts. And as a result, when an instructor designs a virtual environment so that it leverages the things that make virtual learning powerful, learning can be more effective than in face-to-face environments just because of the ability for it to be more personalized. And one of the surprising things about this is in schools, we tend to favor one kind of learner who learns at a certain pace and, and at least in traditional learning, receives information didactically. Teacher says something, student responds. Teacher says something, student responds. And with the opportunities of virtual learning to diversify the way students come to the learning that they're understanding and the ways they can interact, it opens up the possibility for more learners to be successful because it can honor their preference of learning more effectively. So so there's a lot of good reasons to look at this moment and say, well, we didn't expect everyone to have to teach virtually, but since we're here, let's first of all make sure we're giving every kid an opportunity to be reached, and there's an equitable opportunity for this kind of resources, which is a struggle right now in the Department of Education, but teachers are doing amazing work to make that happen. And then let's make sure teachers are getting the opportunities to understand how to best work with students in this environment so that their students can benefit from all this incredible research that's been done in the last 20 years about what works in virtual environments. Do you think more schools will start going to this online learning and not just at the college level? I mean, uh, are we, how young does this type of learning, uh, what's the grade level that you think this would be appropriate for? We, we already know, looking towards the fall, that it is not a strong likelihood that we can go back to the old normal, where we expect schools to be open all the time, where kids can interact freely, at least for the foreseeable future, given the concerns around spread of disease and, and the closeness and proximity of a school environment, a thousand, you know, adolescents with, uh, you know, 200 adults all packed into a few thousand square feet is just a prescription that you know, we don't want to see happen until we're sure that we can control for, you know, those kind of opportunities where the disease spreads. So I think a lot of folks are looking at what the fall would need to look like, and that means probably using more virtual tools by necessity, being prepared for maybe having a week away from school while an incident is followed up and a contract trace is done. And so I think there's going to be, for all schools, a necessity to have a more thought-out plan for how do teachers make sure that the work they're designing isn't just 
contingent on seeing kids face-to-face three, four, five days a week. But also, if we don't see them every day, or maybe we don't see them for an extended time, so I think we are going to need to plan for a more broad adoption of these practices. And it won't be an either-or, like we can either do it or we can't. It'll be an, a yes and. Yes, we are still valuing the importance of meeting as a community, and we're building in strong you know, pedagogical structures and assessment practices that, that provide us to both have students learn and show evidence of learning using virtual tools. So I think that that's just, it, it looks like the most likely scenario for schools at a minimum to have to address if not to be ready by August 2020. The age level is a really interesting one because at the Pacific even, we've got right now, you know, pre-K, three-year-olds all the way through, you know, 18-year-olds on our campus. And what we're doing in our elementary education and early childhood education is very different than what we're doing in our high school because the needs of learners at that early ages require a different kind of high touch point with what students are doing and, and what information and activities we've been asking them to do and how important it is for the teachers to have an opportunity for those students to feel connected to each other in the learning. And so one of the phrases in the Pacific that we've adopted is parent as co-researcher, where the high-touch environment that most younger children have with their parents is something to leverage and to support parents more in how to help their kids, even though we still plan for and have online time for our younger children to meet with their teachers, that time is a, con- a context-setting time for the home time where the students are doing things, maybe with parents, maybe with each other if they have siblings, maybe in independently with work that they're doing. But that's a different kind of structure recognizing how younger learners are. Uh, Hawaii Technology Academy, which is you know our largest charter school in the state of Hawaii and has been doing this work for over a decade, has worked with early childhood or with at least with elementary level education as well as middle and high school. And they've recognized that the role of parent in this developmental process with young learners is critical to help make sure that the kinds of um, actions and responses that happen in a learning environment are there for younger learners when they need it. It's interesting. You know, we've been working with teachers for a decade now. And what's interesting to us is even though the, the media by which we can support teachers and the, and the media that they have to work in is different. Good learning, good teaching, good student work hasn't changed. It, you know, the fact that a student is learning virtually doesn't get rid of 100 years of research about how students learn best. So, you know, the challenge isn't changing what teachers already know are best practices, because most teachers know that when their students are engaged, when there's multiple ways for students to get to things, when um, there's opportunity for them to reflect and to dialogue with each other, that those are still valued. So in our work in Kupuho, we are not changing the things that we still value when we work with teachers, but the ways that we're doing it, just like for teachers that now have to teach virtually, the ways by which they're reaching their students for us has changed. So we've turned those into virtual opportunities to connect our community together and give them a place to talk and learn from each other and to have some additional tools to add to their tool belt so they feel better prepared to work in their new virtual environments that they have to work in for at least uh, you know the, the next few months and maybe beyond. So, so I think that's been, it's interesting. The thing that hasn't changed is the importance of really well thought out learning experiences. It's the means by which we provide those to kids that is what we're all working towards better providing. Dr. Heinz, thanks you for taking the time to talk today. It's been a pleasure, and I wish you the best. And I just want to say a quick shout-out to all the teachers that have rolled up their sleeves and go to school every day now, even if it's at their kitchen table, to still make a difference in kids' lives because that's why we all are doing this. That was Mark Hines, director of MidPAC's Kupuho Academy. All teachers interested in their free online training can go to kupuho.midpac.edu or find links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. Spend time in the gardens of Spain with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Joel Repson with piano virtuoso Joyce Yang. The program includes Gina Stera's Danzas Argentinas, Bizet's Carmen, and Strauss's Don Juan. Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Mid-Pacific Institute. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company continuing to supply fuel to Hawaii's communities with a commitment to health and safety. parhawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check gives us, gives us some insight into the drive-through COVID testing that's underway across the state. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about that this morning. Hi there, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy Monday. You ready for another week? <laughs> <laughs> Every day just kind of runs together, my friend. But I yes, know. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Well, today you've got a story uh, I think by Brittany Light, right? Yes. What she did is uh, she and, and uh, a photographer went out in the field uh, to track, to follow uh, Dr. Scott Miskovich, uh, the private MD who's been working with lots of uh, healthcare workers, uh, some of them working as volunteers, to test people in the community that want to be tested and so far they've uh, they could do it as fast as 700 tests in just four hours Brittany says the estimate is it all told they've done about 10,000 uh, of these tests for coronavirus that's roughly one-third of all the the ones that have been done in the state uh, primarily here on Oahu but also uh, the Big Island and Maui and Molokai it is really amazing because this is a uh, the private sector that just is yeah. step, stepping up. Yeah. Now, what Miskovich did early on in January when he saw the reports that were coming out of China, out of Wuhan, he he thought Hawaii would be at high risk because it's an island state, because of its proximity to Asia, because of its dependence on tourism. And so at that time, he began stockpiling things like masks and surgical gloves and whatnot. He did not believe the state or the U.S as a whole would be at low risk. And of course, we all know how that has now turned out. Um, and so he felt it was his his job as a citizen of Hawaii to help people out. And so his, his company uh, works with uh, the two private labs in the state to go out and offer these tests. The results come back in one to three days. People don't have to have any, you know, requirements. All they have to do is show up at these drive-through clinics. It's free. There's no cost. You don't have to have a referral uh, from a doctor. You don't even have to uh, show proof of insurance. And the goal of Dr. Miskovich and his team is to flatten that curve that we all know. Uh, we know what that term means now, all of us. And I did uh, get a chance to go out to one of the early uh, test sites there in Kaka'ako and uh, was talking to some of the volunteers. And one of them was a was a nurse who was just spending mm. her Sunday out there helping yeah. to direct traffic. <laughs> yeah, there's people like that. Brittany interviewed uh, in the story as well. They feel like they want to do something. As I said, many of these people are volunteering. I, I should say that Dr. Miskovich is part of the task force for the Lieutenant Governor, Josh Green, on COVID-19. As you know, there has been this tension between some who have said, we need to test more, we need to test everybody. But the position of the Department of Health using CDC guidelines is no, we just need to test people that are really showing symptoms. You don't need to do that for asymptomatic or people with mild mild uh, cases or mild symptoms, rather. So this has been a, a constant tension, but Miskovich uh, has been leading the charge to test as much as possible. And the the story today talks about the efforts that they're um, doing to try and test the homeless. Right. There's been a shift in strategy because right now we're seeing what appears to be an effective strategy so far. Just two cases uh, reported yesterday, although one more death was reported. We'll get the newest numbers today. But strong indications that Hawaii is doing well. But So what now Miskovich and his crew are doing is, yes, they are reaching out to homeless camps, homeless shelters, but they're also working on first responders, uh, people that are essential workers, uh, people in the, the rural areas. I mentioned going to the Big Island and to Molokai. And, and the, and, but, you know, they're not always successful. Brittany actually opens her story with Miskovich and his team uh, 
in Waimanalo at a, at a homeless camp, and, and they were kind of wary. You know, wait a minute, what are you doing? Who are you? Go away. We're not sure. But then another another camp uh, welcomed them openly and said, thank you for coming here, bringing them into their um, their uh, facilities and, and introducing them to their family members. So it depends on the community. Nobody's being forced to do this. Again, this is uh, voluntary. It's interesting, though, the the uh, pictures kind of make me cringe because it, oh. it looks a little painful <laughs> when they yeah. stick those swabs yeah. on your nose. There is one of a person holding their, their child, and the child is not looking very happy as the doctor wearing essentially a hazmat suit is, in fact, applying that, that nose swab. It, it, it doesn't take very long, but it's a little bit invasive, if you will. Uh, I should say that uh, the very first case of community spread here in the state actually involved a patient of Dr. Miskovich that was, member Kualoa Ranch? Yes. Uh, God, it seems like ages ago, but it was just last month, I believe. Yeah. Well, I know things are moving very fast, but thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Chad. Appreciate it. Anytime, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To see their coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, head to civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now look to the stars and check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence to celebrate the 30th birthday of an iconic feat of stargazing technology. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Uh, Our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. And as usual, we are very fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line, too. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers, look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in the south before dawn. Also, don't forget that Venus can be seen in the western evening sky at sunset. The moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase, and so the skies will remain nice and dark through to the end of the week. And amidst all of this chaos that we're experiencing with the pandemic, I understand that you have an astronomy-related birthday to offer us a brief moment of celebration. Yes, we do indeed. And as you said, it's important during times like this to celebrate our collective achievements and remind ourselves of what we can achieve when we work together. This week, we are celebrating the 30th birthday of the Hubble Space Telescope, a remarkable milestone in one of the most important space missions in human history. Hubble, with its awe-inspiring images, not only wowed us and fueled our love for exploration, but it also revolutionized how we view the universe. And this is really something for a celebration, too, because at 30, it's still serving us, but there was no guarantee this thing would even work at the offset, right? Indeed. When Hubble was first launched, it was plagued with problems, many of which were the result of a misshapen mirror, and that almost made the telescope worthless. That was until a space shuttle visit. That's right. And the astronauts arrived on a maintenance mission to restore Hubble's sight and upgrade its instruments. And this opened the floodgates of science. And Hubble has hit it out of the park ever since with one incredible discovery after another. Man, are they lucky that that thing hadn't been placed further away, huh? (laughs) Right, exactly. Like new telescopes like the James Webb will be unable to be serviced because they'll be so far away. So we got very lucky indeed. Rolling the dice with a lot of cash. That's a big investment to not know (laughs) what's going to happen. It certainly is. And as we look towards the future, this thing's just, uh, it's like the Energizer Bunny, huh? It's no, no plans on stopping anytime soon. Right. Hubble will keep on rocking so long as its instruments can still function. And so we can expect many more years of incredible science from this amazing space observatory. Happy birthday, Hubble. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Christopher Phillips, for the report. Appreciate it. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week with Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Kaka'ako Innovation Block, housing the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation's Entrepreneur Sandbox. FerraroChoi.com.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we're talking about an 80s pop star with Hawaii roots. Today, he is president of St. Louis School in Honolulu, where he first joined as principal in 2015. But Glenn Medeiros had a different career before his current students were even born. As a pop singer, he had a number of hits during the late 1980s and 90s, and he continued as a lyricist with over 200 songwriting credits to his name. His breakout hit was a cover of George Benson's Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You. In 1986, a teenage Maderos covered the song for a local radio station contest, and he won. He recorded it, and the hit song caught fire, eventually topping the U.K. charts in 1988. However, it only reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, one of his seven to break the top 100. Only one of his songs reached number one, his duet with Bobby Brown, She Ain't Worth It. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today is the 50th anniversary of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. To celebrate the occasion, the Organization for Private Schools put together a book about its history. It was released in January. That's also when we had the authors and longtime HAIS leaders in the studio to talk about private schools in Hawaii. Our guests that day were Phil Bossert, the current executive director of HAIS, Robert Witt, the founding executive director, uh, where he served until 2014, and Dan White, founding head of school at Island Pacific Academy and an HAIS board member for 12 years. We recorded this discussion in January, prior to school closings and distance learning amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We uh, spoke to Phil Bostert this morning for an update. He says that the schools are anticipating a drop in enrollment. Parents have lost jobs and will simply be unable to pay their tuition. Schools are trying to expand financial aid, but Bossard still sees some drop in students. Following the Great Recession a decade ago, private schools lost roughly 10 percent of their enrollment. But there is some optimism. Bossard says HIS meets the, with the head of schools every Tuesday via Zoom, and no one is looking to close their doors. On this HIS birthday, we look at how HIS began and the challenges of private schools during its history. Here's former executive director Robert Witt. I came on board in 1989, but the association was founded in 1970, basically. So what happened But from 1970 to 1990? 20 years. And so we looked very carefully at the founding fathers of HAIS. And then there was a second group of founders, if you will, in the 70s and 80s. And the names of these people will be familiar to some of your listeners. There was uh, Joe Pinchon uh, at La Pietra, Rod McPhee from Punahou, David Kuhn from Iolani, and then Jack Darville from Kamehameha Schools. And they were followed shortly thereafter by Dorothy Douthat, David Kennedy, Lester Sincaid, and Bob Peters. And so those people created the infrastructure uh, for HEIS and also a philosophy. And they believed that an ecosystem, if you will, of private schools would help all the schools. The big schools, in a way, needed the little schools. The little schools needed the big schools. So we discovered there was a theme that we characterized as independence. Yes, we had to protect that and nurture that, but also mutual interests and common interests. We just called it mutuality. And that's in all the chapters. And, and, and Dan, Dan talk, yeah, talk that. about that, Dan. You know, mm -hmm. it's a yin-yang yeah. thing. Absolutely, the yin-yang. I, I think what got us started on that, that the notion of how important the founding values were is that we talk about independent schools being uh, uh, mission-driven, and missions often are, are derived from values. Well, the association that was founded, in fact, reflects those same attributes that, that individual schools do. There's a story that it's, it, it's probably, well, it's, it, it probably isn't apocryphal. It's probably true, but we've probably embellished it over the years. And that was that uh, Joe Pinchon was sitting in his office at La Pietra. And in the old days, you used to get films from national distributing companies. And there was a box that was sending a film to, or the, the uh, company was sending a film to La Pietra. And Joe decided to peel back the address label and find out where it had been before and discovered that it had been at Punahou about a month before. And it's sort of the light bulb went on for him and said, no, wait a minute, 
maybe there's a way in which Punahou and La Pietra could talk about what we're doing here in a way that would save both schools money. Now, you don't think about Punahou having to save money, but one of the ways you get to be wealthy is to make sure you don't waste <laughs> money. So you look at that group that Robert was talking about, Joe and David and Rod and Jack, three are from very large schools, but Joe is from the small schools. Yeah. Uh, it was Betty White that pointed out uh, when we were talking with her for the, for the book that uh, the, the smaller schools in the state have really benefited from the fact that the larger schools understand the importance of this ecosystem. The mutuality, well, you, you mentioned that Robert had been before the legislature. Uh, that's one way. I, I think the accreditation process that we've developed in Hawaii, and we did that in tandem with California, is second to none nationally. It really looks, it's a strength-built model, not a deficit-built model. It's all kinds of attributes it has, has to it. Those are two specific examples of the mutuality. But as a head of school, I was hired by Board of Trustees to look after the, <laughs> the school that I was hired to look after. And so you've got that tension. You, you, you want to collaborate, and there are ways in which you can collaborate, collaborate. But at the same time, you need to retain your own individual character. It's not so different than what we would see in general society. We're parts of community, but we're trying to assert, our, assert ourselves as individuals. So it, it's not exactly a new theme in human history, but we thought it was really important to bring it out because that's where we started. And I think that if you look at the association now, that's where they still are. And you all have backgrounds with accreditation. Can we talk about that? I mean, how you've been able to help other schools? Accreditation is the way that we assure parents who are thinking about a private school for their child, that it is a reliable um, place, a safe place, a place where their child will learn well, a, a place where their child will make good friends and so forth. Accreditation is involving a self-study by the members of a school community of their own community and their own program. And they have to look at it very, very carefully and write it up. So the self-reflection process leads to improvement. Kind of a 360. It's a 360 mm -hmm. kind of thing. When accreditation was first introduced in Hawaii back in the early 70s, it was really more of something that happened to a school every six years. When Dan and I came along and started working on it with Bob Peters and Dorothy Douthat and some of those guys, we decided that it should be more of an assets-driven program. Let's help schools understand themselves better. And that's what we've done. Um, also, we developed the licensing program that is modeled after the accreditation program. So we really, over the years, became a school improvement organization, perhaps more than anything else, and also a professional development for teachers organization. Let's well, talk about the accreditation process. Have we had a, a situation where a school has lost its accreditation? I don't recall. You would know better than, than I. Well, I th we've had schools that have been placed in, on, on probation. Okay. Um, I'm not aware of anybody since I've been here that actually lost its accreditation. <laughs> Generally speaking, if they were in that dire strait, they would go out of business before that would happen. Uh, but having been a part of the accrediting commission um, out of you know, that meets in California and includes Hawaii, Yes, there are schools that, in fact, lose accreditation. And that, uh, I think Robert's correct in saying it's, it's, it's a way that the independent schools can say to the larger community, this school has a clear-cut mission. It is serving its mission. It knows what it's doing. It has the resources to apply to that. It, it's, it's one of those sort of shorthand things we say that, uh, about accreditation is that schools, uh, if they're going to fail, governance and finance are generally the reasons it's, we don't think about the importance of governance, but if there isn't a, a good governance body there that is sort of assuring that the mission is being met, that the, that the school is uh, fiscally sound, that it has good leadership, all those things, that's a problem. It's a problem if they intrude too much. So governance is one of those things that's also a bit of a dynamic uh, tension. And finance is obvious. If you don't have any money, you can't operate. And that's very much enrollment-driven. Uh, let's talk briefly about charter schools, because I know uh, I've done stories on, you know, schools that have just uh, had issues with either finances or governance mm -hmm. and had their charters yanked. Uh, and, and we've had a number of new charters crop up. Uh, so who wants to take that question? I think Phil first, and I'll follow. Okay. So uh, this is Phil. Um, 
So when the charters first came, basically a charter school is a publicly funded private school. Uh, unlike public schools, charters have their own board and they can pick their own curriculum. Um, and they most of them have a 501c3 fundraising arm. Uh, and so they're very much like a private school. Um, and I think a lot of people thought when the charter schools started, they were going to take all the private school <laughs> students away. But that was not the case. Um, and the uh, most of the charters have drawn their students from the public schools. And most of the charters, or many of the charters, uh, have been started by public school teachers mm-hmm. who want to do something new and different and innovative. And part of the founding idea for charter schools were these, this, they're called new century charters, uh, was for them to get out there, do innovative stuff, and it works, then it feeds mm-hmm. back into the public mm-hmm. schools, and that has been the case. I recall, I think, when um, uh, Island Pacific Academy uh, first started, I know we've had a changing of the guard with a lot of uh, the other schools that have been around uh, uh, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've had the uh, Punahou headmaster step down, or the president, I should say. Uh, we saw that at Kamehameha Schools, at Midpac with Joe Rice, uh, you know, going back to the days of Val Iwashita from Iolani School, you know, Betty White. I mean, the, the list yeah. goes on. We just had this incredible brain trust, and then, uh, and then they stepped away. But there's an, mm-hmm. a new crop of, of mm-hmm. folks uh, out there. Yeah, Catherine, this is Dan. Uh, and actually, when I got involved in the, in, in, in the, the book writing project uh, with, with Phil, it was for really just that reason. I, it, was, it was my last meeting as a member of the HIS board, and I looked around the table, and I realized when Betty and Jim left that the institutional history was gone. And so I never thought of a book. I thought, well, let's just write some stuff down here and make sure it's not lost in much the same way that Robert was talking about. And, and Phil was the one that said, well, let's just make a book out of it. I'm, I'm a, a real optimist when it comes to that. And I'll give you a specific. Uh, this week I was in, in, involved in a, a luncheon for current school heads. Several uh, of them we are trying to encourage to become chairs of these visiting committees to go out uh, and do the accreditations. Now, admittedly, Bob Peters and I were the old guys. We were sitting there, and there were a couple of others who had experience. But as I looked at the table, I realized that kind of what uh, I think David Kuhn was the one that talked about you know, the, the new centurions, and he was talking probably about us. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty, <laughs> you know, so, so now it's, uh, you know, what do you do when the young Turks are old? Uh, but it's really reassuring to see that these young people are coming along and taking the responsibility, very much buying into the ethos uh, of the public purpose of private education, of uh, the, the need for, for uh, collaboration and mutuality through the schools of the future is an excellent example of schools coming together and sharing uh, information in a professional development manner and then extending that to the public school uh, faculties as well. So this notion that, yeah, we're all in the business of educating all of Hawaii's children is alive and well with those young people around the table. Now, uh, I, I recall with David Kuhn, I, I recall when Iolani opened their doors to girls, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a big deal. Uh, and then we saw that with St. Francis, mm-hmm. you know, Sister Joan of Arc, and, you know, we saw St. Francis close down, and that was, I think, uh, kind of traumatic for, for the community. But but let's talk about that, about those trends. You know, where it's single-sex education, and then you've, uh, you know, you've had also schools that either added, uh, uh, let's say, higher grades, or schools that were middle and then going down to elementary. That's true. Uh, this is Phil. So over the years, we have seen s- s- some of the uh, single-sex schools become dual-sex schools, uh, dual-gender, and partly to deal with uh, enrollment issues, but also to give different opportunities, uh, perhaps, to the kids growing up. We've seen just this year, Waldorf, uh, Huddle and Waldorf decided to close its high school and uh, consolidate back to a single campus. Um, so there's various reasons, as Dan mentioned, it could be financial reasons and it could be enrollment reasons and competition. There was uh, a significant expansion in the number of private schools in the 1990s when the population in Hawaii of school-aged children jumped by almost 75,000. And so public school enrollments went up, private school enrollments went up, more private schools opened. And then during the recession period between about 2006 or seven and uh, 2012, 2013, 25 
uh, private schools closed. Uh, they just ran out of students, so to speak. But in general, the percentage of students attending private schools has stayed pretty constant at between 15 and, and 17 percent for the last 30 years. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Bob, what do you think that uh, means? The enrollment at the larger schools, if you will, uh, remains pretty steady. And so if you look at the private school community as a whole, a large number of the students are coming from five or six larger schools. So that number never changes too much, and that keeps the average where it is. So that's the main reason. And as Phil said, as schools close, other schools open. So that's encouraging. Yes, Robert Witt, retired HIS executive director, and Dan White of Island Pacific ha Academy talking about private schools and the history of HIS, which celebrates its 50th anniversary today. They published a book, Building a Community to Commemorate the Occasion. It can be found at the association's website, HAIS.us. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we hear more about our farmers and the woes of those in the flower business. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.